Welcome to the 5G Techvitory podcast, where we will explore the hottest topics in 5G with some of the industry's leading minds. Welcome finally, welcome again to 5G Techvitory, and let's have uh, our policy and strategy keynote speech. So the question is, how big is our Techvitory? We're mentioning every single time we're talking about this event. Um, local, regional, and global dimensions of uh, our collaboration. Because as we heard yesterday, it is all about getting together and deciding who will do what, who will pay for what, and who will regulate all that thing. So now please welcome under Secretary for Digital Transformation and Government Chief Information Officer with Estonian Ministry of Economic Affairs, Lucas Silvis. Welcome. Come on. Labdien, sveiki, paldies, kašodienes mūs katoves. I will continue in English because that's more or less the limit of my good Latvian. But first of all, I want to praise this conference. Um, for its breadth. I mean, basically, it is a full-stack conference. You have all the layers from quite technical, you know, discussing the bits and bytes of 5 and 6G, how it works on a physical layer, quantum computing, up to quite a few different business scenarios, how uh, we actually sort of go and take the technology and turn it into societal change. And so this breadth and the ability to bring together from the very kind of technical to the more business-oriented crowds, that is impressive. That is not something every conference manages to pull off. And I just want to praise the organizers and thank you for bringing us together. Now, there's, a, there's a, an implicit question in the name of the conference, 5G Techratory, which is, what is the Techratory? How big is the Techratory? Um, are we talking about Riga, Latvia, the region, the world? And that's sort of what I want to talk about today. And I, and I want to look at the, the territory and what that territory could be about in different dimensions, physical geography, the flow of people and business, and finally, politics and geopolitics. And I want to talk about how we collaborate and we cooperate between countries. Because to be frank, we talk about it a lot, but it's difficult. Um, and it's often challenging to really work together in practice. And I think that we have to do a better job at it if we want to achieve the goals that we've set. And the axiom I want to start with is that when you talk about the 5G territory, you can't possibly just be talking about Latvia. It is far too small to be a territory in its own right. And I know this because Estonia is far too small to be a territory of any kind in its own right. And while Latvia is bigger than Estonia, you're not that much bigger. So, and I'm going to start off by sort of by proving this axiom a bit from the, the experience of Estonia as a digital nation, which really is a result of openness and sharing and, and building an ecosystem that is larger than our country. And this started in the 1990s with our first round of digitization with deploying the internet, which frankly we did at the time as a very poor country with development assistance from Europe and from the US. And so we would not have in the first place become a network country without capital, without expertise from outside, including a lot of investment, investment especially from, from Scandinavian telecoms companies. Similarly, when we, when we adopted electronic identity in the late 90s, we copied Finland's EID system, and we implemented it better, but we probably wouldn't have sort of done so on our own. Uh, and today, EID in Estonia is economically viable as a business proposition, precisely because the main operator operates across the market, across Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, providing services in all three countries. 
XROAD, our, our data exchange platform, far too expensive to maintain and to develop at a national level. Uh, and so first with Finland, we started to co-develop and jointly procure developments to XROAD, and today we have 15 plus countries using the open source XROAD, developed by NIS, an organization I'll talk about later, uh, as well as another 15 countries or so uh, using the, a forked uh, proprietary version called UXP. And finally, there's Estonia's story as a startup nation, which started with Skype, Danish and Swedish entrepreneurs and an Estonian tech team building a revolutionary technology product together. Again, not something that Estonians on their own at the time had either the capital or the business acumen to pull off. But today, that has birthed what we like to call the land of the unicorns, perhaps per capita the most productive startup country in the world. And so I know that the tech territory we are building will be bigger than just Latvia or just Estonia. And the question is, how big? And I'm gonna, let's start off with geography, because there are some things when it comes to technology, especially when we're talking about 5G, that are fundamentally bounded by geography. We are on an island. We're bounded by the Baltic Sea to the north and to the west, Russia to the east and much of the south, along with Belarus, with a narrow land bridge to Poland uh, via Lithuania, and yes, Riga is in the middle of that island. Now, where this matters most, of course, is in the physical layer, physical infrastructure and spectrum. And today, of course, we collaborate in these areas, but we can do much more. We've talked about 5G corridors today. Um, these are something that you know, we have to actually deliver on, and that's going to require a lot of practical work, a lot of uncomfortable harmonization on, on nuances like how we do procurement procedures, um, and, and our spectrum procedures in particular. You know, it's not enough to have a European framework that says we basically procure the same, or we, we basically auction off the same spectrum at the same time if we're still running separate auctions with separate nuances of the conditions, separate auction platforms and so on, um, if we truly want to have a common unified market, then these things need to come together. And I don't say that will happen overnight. Um, I think, for instance, it's, it's a bit of an embarrassment that Estonia was a number of years behind Latvia and Lithuania in, in auctioning off uh, many of its most important 5G spectrum blocks. And, and the reason ultimately is because we had this challenging discussion on 5G security, which again, each one of us held nationally and came up with slightly different rules. Now, but as an island, in particular, we need to consider our, our connections to the outside world. And historically, the Estonian paradigm here, at least, has been to, to treat Estonia as the island, to, to at least when it comes to certain forms of critical infrastructure and services and government networks to say, look, of course, we, we trust our neighbors, but we have to be ready for the possibility that all outside internet connections to the world are interrupted. And primarily, this comes from the fact that most of our physical connectivity with the rest of the world is through undersea cables. Now, that is still to some extent a necessary problem. And we may trust Finland and Sweden with our data, but if we can't access our data and our processing in Finland and Sweden because one of the many but not infinitely many undersea cables, or sorry, if they've all been cut, then we're in a problem. But what's ridiculous is that we don't consider Latvia or Lithuania to be part of the same contiguous territory. After all, you know, to, cut, to cut the many physical links we have of our fiber and our connectivity is, is much more difficult. And there's no reason that today we should not be looking at Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania as a single contiguous territory when it comes to continuity planning, both for government services and for um, various kinds of essential services from healthcare to telecommunications to energy. If our defense planners are able to do this and to look at the, the 3B as a common operational area, then certainly we can also do it when it comes to essential services and, uh, and uh, internal security. Um, and this also means building new common capabilities. I mean, if we all have this common 
uh, common dependence on undersea cables for our physical connectivity with the outside world, maybe we should look at common capabilities to repair cables and to lay new cables. Um, similarly, pooling um, our resources in, in the use of satellite internet and learning from Ukraine, has, how, how Ukraine has been able to maintain connectivity in extremely difficult situations this year. And similarly, as we, as we look toward the future, when we look toward things like quantum computing, you know, proximity is going to matter. Proximity is going to matter in terms of how our physical secure communications work. Uh, proximity matters when we talk about the types of compute that sort of blend together into connectivity for ultra-low latency applications. And again, there's no real difference whether the high-performance computing center is sitting in the south of Estonia or the north of Latvia. You know, we're talking about physical distances that don't really care about political boundaries, and so we should be doing these things together. And so I think that's the first layer, right? Where, where, where the, the fundamental limits of physics come in, we of course have to be local, but we should realize that being local doesn't mean being national. And then we, we can look a little bit more broadly at the flows of people and capital. And of course, the first place you look to there is Europe. But I think the interesting reality is that if we look at the actual structures of our economies, the firms that really determine what our lives look like, they are in a sense more local uh, than Europe. They are in particular uh, limited or they're particularly sort of defined by the Baltic Sea region where, you know, in addition to our three countries, we look more broadly at the Nordic region, our telecoms companies, our banks, even our food companies are integrated across the region, headquartered, whether they're headquartered in Tallinn, Lithuania, Riga, Stockholm, Helsinki, um, and the government isn't always there. The, the, the way in which we interact with these companies as regulators doesn't reflect the economic integration that is what, that, that describes what our region and what our region's life looks like today. Um, our regulations and our rules are in practice often still national. They're harmonized formally at a European level, but not in the level of the details. And in the digital world, you know, differences in bits and bytes matter. You either have the same rules and the same processes or you don't, or you don't. And so if we want to be able to offer a single market and a single environment for many of these companies, we have to go further. Um, and, and for Estonia, at least, we look most closely so far at our immediate neighbors, Finland and Latvia. And so I want to describe some of what we've done, for instance, with Finland as what I hope is a template for collaboration uh, across the region. So we've gone furthest with Finland. Um, we have jointly founded uh, a, a multinational organization, the Nordic Institute for Interoperability Solutions, which builds joint software solutions for public administration. We want to involve, however, all of the countries in the Nordic Baltic region in the work of NICE. Iceland joined recently, and we look to have La Latvia, Lithuania, Sweden, and Denmark, and Norway joining soon. With Finland, we engage in the automated exchange of a wide range of data and services from healthcare to taxation. And the goals really for, for individuals are for the life events of the tens of thousands of Estonians and Finns who live in multiple places, who commute across the border to be managed jointly. So things like having a child you know, and sending the child to school or something much more saddening like the death of a, of a relative and all the bureaucracy around that really happen across these countries in a way that is as automated as they are domestically with the digital government we're building at home. And for our enterprises and our businesses, we aim to have a truly real-time economy where we automate reporting, taxation information, invoicing with the private sector. Um, and what we've calculated is that with just some of these, these streamlining that really are about data and interoperability, we can save 200 million euros a year for companies in Estonia, a billion euros a year in Finland, and greatly increase our economic integration. And so what we see is that this sort of digital collaboration, the movement of data and services ultimately brings our economies more, cl more closely together in practice. 
And we've prototyped this in particular with Finland, but we look to do the same across the region. So with Latvia, as with Finland, uh, we have joint multi-year uh, programs for collaboration that really cover everything but are very heavy on digital. Our cabinets meet together on a nearly annual basis to discuss this collaboration, and this, I think, is a template for what we should be doing with all of the Nordics and the Baltics. So, so we talked a bit about how government in the region can, can make the sort of playing field for our companies more unified and ultimately make a, you know, help a company from Estonia feel like they're in their home market, truly in their home market in Finland, in Latvia, in Norway. But the private sector isn't perfect. And I want to give you an example um, from the telco space. Uh, when I started my job at the beginning of the year, I, I met with the CEOs um, of the large telcos in Estonia. And one of the issues I discussed, very frankly, with them is that the affordability of gigabit internet in Estonia uh, is inferior, quite inferior to that of Latvia and Lithuania. And there are many reasons for this. Uh, both Latvia and Lithuania have invested more public funds into the rollout of fiber. There are differences in the regulatory regime, but it doesn't explain the full variation. And one of the CEOs said to me, well, but look, and I asked him, look, your company, same brand, same headquarters, same capital structure, everything, offers the same service in Vilnius three times cheaper than in Tallinn for gigabit internet. And I asked, what's going on here? He says, yeah, but look, the networks we build in, in Lithuania, they're not as good as the ones we have in Estonia. You know, we invest more here and we do it better here. First of all, that's a very interesting claim. And, and to my Lithuanian colleagues, I think you should go have an interesting conversation with this company. Um, and, and I'm not sure that that's true. But let's leave aside for a moment whether that's true or not. It's in a sense, it's a very sad reflection of, uh, it's a sad reflection of the state of, of how much this particular company is integrated if the head of the Estonian unit really still thinks that his product is different to the products offered by the same company in, in a, other home markets that they're active in. And so, I mean, as we talk about how governments need to work more closely together to offer uh, a single platform for companies in the region, we also do have to look at these regional companies um, and ask whether they are truly um, looking at all of these countries as their home markets. And so I think this, the, the mindset shift, which we are in the process of doing regionally, isn't fully complete yet. Um, and, that's, and, and solving that problem and really getting to a place where uh, we look at our home markets as a single home market is still uh, something that's in progress. And finally, I want to discuss the global level um, and, and how we collaborate uh, more internationally. Now, as you all know, we are in an era in which technology is political. And one of the things that we've learned in the last couple of years is that we cannot rely on the technology and the services of autocratic regimes for critical applications. Most actively, we've discussed this in the context of 5G, but there are also other places where we've learned this lesson. But the question then is, how broad is our circle of trust? And clearly, the European level is critical. That is where we, we do much of our regulation. That is the single market that we're building, uh, and of course, the, the, the source of a lot of our shared values but we cannot build a fortress Europe, a world in which we cannot be open to technology from the US, the UK, from South Korea and Japan, and pretty much any other OECD member. It's a world that is less dynamic and has less opportunity for our people and our companies. It is one in which European companies will suffer, including the powerhouses of our region, the Nokias, the Ericssons, and the Bolts, the Spotify's, and the many other unicorns that will come. If we build a fortress Europe that is, that, that prefers European technology and isn't open to the technology from other like-minded countries sharing our value across the world, we will ultimately hurt our own ability to be dynamic and to export across the world. 
And this is why formats in which we engage with the rest of the democratic world are so critical, including formal bodies like the OECD, the G7, uh, networks like, and, and, and recurring formats like the Transatlantic uh, Trade and Technology Council, the Three Seas Initiative here in the region, um, as well as smaller groupings and discussions, including many of the discussions that have been held here in the last few days at this conference. Um, and as developed economies, what we need to be aiming at is that we really truly pool our technology, our regulations, but also our capital as an instrument to invest in each other and to in invest in the emerging world. Because of course, the question of technology and geopolitics is not just a question of whether we here at home have the technology of autocracies, but who will set the broader technological paradigm in the emerging world for the next century? What technology and what values baked in the, into that technology will India, will Latin America, will Africa be using for the next 50 years? And in, in principle, the technological business and capital potential of the collective West far outweighs that of the world's autocracies. But we, again, we have to pool our resources and we have to be able to work together here. And the, so this is why for Estonia as a very small country, it's been critical that we promote an idea of trusted connectivity as sort of the outcome of things like the OECD's Blue Dot Network and the EU's Global Network, where the idea of trusted connectivity is that in the way in which we pool our capital, share our standards, and trust each other, we ultimately are able to build a technological world um, where in spite of the fact that um, you, know, you have a lot of codependence, um, we, we talk about a positive situation of co and interdependence and not one of constantly worrying uh, what our vulnerabilities are between friends. Now, we've talked a lot about collaboration and cooperation. We've talked about it on the level of the, the three Baltics. We've talked about it on the level of the broader region, Europe, and the world. But the reality, the harsh reality, is that collaboration is not easy. It's not just meetings. It's not just talking. Uh, in our experience, true collaboration happens when we pool our activities. That means common budgets, common decisions, common procurements, con common infrastructure. And even then, it requires an ongoing emotional and political commitment and trust between people. And we know that's not always easy. Um, from another domain, which has been talked about at this conference, um, Rail Baltica, you know, we are years behind in our plans precisely because even though we've had a common budget, common decisions, and common procurement, it still is hard doing things together. So I talk about the need for collaboration and the need to do these things together jointly, not because it's a no-brainer, not because it's easy, precisely because it's difficult to do. Um, and in that sense, I want to ex again extend my gratitude to the organizers of this conference for doing that difficult thing. Um, the, the ambition that you have here is not just to have a nice conference, um, but to have this be a platform for real collaboration, for doing things jointly together. And I think this is something we have to carry forward. So I would like to see a larger Estonian group here next year. Um, really helping to co-design this discussion so that on discussions of our common infrastructure, um, discussions um, on how we build common markets for connectivity and the business on top of this, we merge our national discussions together and build a territory that first of all is a three Baltics territory where the physical bits and bytes really matter, that when we then look at the flows of people and capital is truly one that is regional. First of all, looking at the Nordic and the Baltic region as a whole, and then of course looking toward Europe. And finally, if we look at the values 
um, and the security questions that are baked into our technology, one that has a global outlook that does not stop at the borders of Europe, but also is open to the technology, the capital, the services from, the many, um, from our many close allies and friends across the democratic world. And I think this is a way in which we build a situation in which the opportunities um, of this exciting era really are open to entrepreneurs, to startups, to individuals, to scholars from Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, from across the region, to a place in which it doesn't matter that you're born in a small country of one and a half or two million people next to a very unfriendly neighbor where you truly can see the entire world as your oyster. So I think this is what we need to be building. I know that it isn't an easy thing to do, but certainly I can say from, uh, from my side uh, and from that of many of my colleagues, it is one that we are willing to put the hard work into building. I know you are too, and I look forward to working together with you. Thank you. Thank you, Lucas. Um, we have an opportunity to send in questions on the platform. That's where the comments are. And Alexander is asking, uh, what is WT WTO's role in the metaverse and digitalization aspect? Huh. I have never thought about the WTO's world in the metaverse. Um, so I'm, I'm going to punt on that one, but I'm going to take that home with me and chew on it. I think more broadly in digitalization, um, it has been a challenging time for the WTO because the trade in electronic services is a much trickier thing than the trade in goods. And basically, everything today is a service. I mean, even the physical goods today are services. So we know that with our teleco infrastructure, with cars and so on, that are basically all turning into software services. So I think in theory, there's a very big role for the WTO, but the reality is we don't see it today in practice. I mean, in a sense, we've, we've retrenched from that. And I think part of the issue which, we, which I touched on briefly, is that the level of trust that you have in a service and, and, you know, is different to the level of trust you have in a physical product. Because the physical product, basically, once it crosses your border, it's yours. And you can sort of inspect it and prod it and you know, make sure it's been designed to a standard. And then you say, it's here. You know? And that's true for simple products like oil and steel. And that's true for more complex products. You know, historically, let's take the example of car. If you import a car, you know, it doesn't matter where it's been manufactured in terms of the, po the political nature of the regime or whether you trust the country it was manufactured in. You want to trust the manufacturer for its quality. But you know, once it's in your territory, it's there. Now, today, when you import a car, you're, you, know, you, you still have that, the software of that car man managed somewhere, operated somewhere. You're you, know, you have a service contract you're basically engaged in. In fact, you do often have a service contract that you sign when you buy a car today. And so, in a sense, the, the free trade regime that worked for cars doesn't actually, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, no longer works today. Um, and, and what we've discovered in particular is that there are quite a few WTO countries whose physical goods we are happy to consume, but because of the ongoing exposure and vulnerability you have when you have a service relationship where you ultimately have somebody in another country deciding how that product works today, it doesn't work so well in the services world. So I honestly don't know, but I think it's a very difficult question for the WTO to work through. And I think in some ways the WTO because it's so broad, looks today like the UN and has many of the governance challenges that the UN has. So then what is the uh, chance that we can control, for example, technology just coming from somewhere we wouldn't like to come it from? Uh, because as we can see with Russia, technologies are just yeah. sneaking in from all the countries we really trust. It's, uh, again, it's, it's very difficult. Um, you know, I, I worked for a while in a blockchain company, so the fantasy um, is that uh, everything is cryptographically verifiable. And so at the end of the day, I have this 
perfect provenance chain of the bits and bytes. And I know exactly what's happened as this product and the service has come together. But the reality of the complexity of a service today is that you can't, no one's able to, no one's in practice able to bring this information together. And even if they can, that tells you what happened in the past. It doesn't tell you what's going to happen in the future. And, you know, I think this is something that really hit, I mean, when I spoke with a lot of my colleagues um, uh, in the last six months about how they've approached the question of 5G, uh, most of them had looked at it in the content, 5G security rather, most of them had looked at the risks in terms of the question of confidentiality. You know, and many had said, well, look, we can build our networks and our architectures in such a way that even if there was a, a piece of hardware or some software in our network that was trying to breach confidentiality, you know, we could detect it and we can layer our networks and so on. But not very many of them thought about availability, which is to say it's a lot harder to, uh, you know, to prevent someone who has built your network and, and understands how it works intimately and is running the software from just pressing a kill switch. And that availability question is what, after the 24th of February, really was front and present in everyone's mind. So I've spoken with, with European colleagues who said, look, we took a fairly liberal approach to 5G security regulations a year or two ago. If we were doing it today, we would have been much more hawkish and much more conservative, precisely because that kill switch, you know, that we just don't have a 5G infrastructure tomorrow, is a risk we hadn't appreciated as much as we should have. And all these precautions could also a little stall the progress in technologies themselves. That's absolutely true. It can. And, and this is, again, why the, the idea of a, a broader collaborative between countries where this trust exists is so important. Where you know, even Europe today, is, we know very well we do not have the full stack of technologies today, certainly when it comes to advanced electronics and manufacturing and, and, and a lot of software. Um, if we want to have access to dynamic, uh, you know, to, to, to these technologies and to the opportunities they offer, we have, to have to, we have to have a way of building a circle of trust that is broader than Europe, which frankly means basically OECD countries. It means the US, the UK, Japan, South Korea, Latin American countries. Um, so that, that's how we have to do it, and those are the discussions we have to have. I don't think that, um, you know, you will ever have perfect supply chain security. I mean, let's take a very concrete example. I know that our countries are very sensitive about Russian involvement in the technology and the, the products and services we're building. I mean, to the point of saying, you know, trying to ascertain and minimize the risk that a single person connected to Russia uh, in any way involved, was involved in building a product and a service. Now, we have many very close, you know, allies who, yes, they are trying to get Russia as a country out of the supply chain, but they will never have that level of scrutiny and control. And so there's always going to be a risk that you know, these attacks have occurred on the supply chain. And there's always a risk that, I mean, the attack doesn't have to be a person, it can ultimately be a hack. So we do also have to sort of live with a certain level of risk and think about how we manage those risks and you know, if those risks materialize, how we do consequence mitigation. I mean, this is a basic truth of cybersecurity, which is there is no invulnerability and you always have to prepare for compromise and have thought through how you're resilient even af after the risks materialize. So, so to come back to the supply chain question, there is never going to be you know, a perfect guarantee that countries we don't like aren't involved in the supply chain. We need to minimize it, but we also need to think about what measures we take in the technolo technological level, the service and the business level, so that when those risks do materialize, we can deal with the consequences. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Lucas. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Lucas Silvis.